For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. Perhaps there isn't a Bible verse that is so immediately relatable to the married people amongst us. Marriage is a profound mystery. From the frustrating, why hasn't he put up that fire alarm that he should have put up a month ago? To the confounding, how did I not see that before we got married? To the downright hilarious, I can't believe he thinks that. He likes that. He did that before we were married. I'd like to tell you that all the examples given have been changed to protect the identity of the husband involved, but I can't. But we should read, pause and read the, the following words to that verse. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The passage from Revelation 19 that David just read to us a few minutes ago is part of a vision of the future given to churches in the first century who were struggling. Struggling because some people hated them. Struggling because of, well, their own doubts. Struggling because some people resented them for not fitting in with the world around. Struggling because sometimes they did fit in with the world around. And the vision that they are given is a, an ap apocalyptic vision. That means that it's crazy. It's full of pictures and images and things that seem unreal. Strange and wonderful, but all designed to show them their place. To encourage and comfort them that there is one at the centre of this vision and this world who is in control, who is good, who will bring justice and peace to this world, who will eventually defeat fully and finally all of his enemies. And that person is Jesus. The book of Revelation is all about Jesus and how he wins. And once his victory is secured, the book of Revelation points us forward to what will take place. A wedding. The victorious warrior who is also a lamb who was slain will sit down to feast to celebrate, and he will be joined by the one that he loves, the one he has fought for, the one he has rescued, his beloved, his bride, the church. As we finish out our series of the pictures of what the church is that God gives us in his word, we are finishing with the church as bride. A picture that's given to us for at least two reasons that we're going to look at together today. The first is this, the church as bride, so that we know how much we are loved. The second, the church as bride, so that we know how wonderful our destination is. So the church as bride, so that we know how much we are loved. Why would we need to know this? 
Well, I think we need to know this because of our ordinariness. Because quite frankly, we're nothing special. None of us. Certainly not all of us together here today. I realise that, you know, you might not be friends with me after this. But we're quite ordinary, aren't we? And ordinary people tend not to get the attention and the acclaim and the love. Ordinary people don't tend to get the girl, so to speak. So we need to know this because we're ordinary, but we need to know this but also because we are sinful. Because of what we think and what we say and what we do. And whether that's outwardly or inwardly, whether other people see it or not, we know we fall short of what we ought to be, even as a church. And so we need to know that we are loved. And we need to know that we are loved because of our tendency to begin to treat God as though he is transactional. And so we look at ourselves and think, we've offered little. I look back at my previous week and I ask the question, have I served enough? Have I cared enough for others? Have I shone enough? Have we shone enough as a church? We're supposed to be light and we we ask these questions and we think, well, we begin to think that God is transactional. And therefore, what's coming back from God, given how little we offer, must be little in return. We need to know how much we are loved. And not just loved by any broad definition, but a covenant love. A love that doesn't fade. A love that doesn't go stale. But a love that is constant. And a love that is promised. We live in a society now that has a, a funny compromise going on with, with, with the idea of marriage. And so marriage is still celebrated, still to some degree honoured. But also marriage is less than it used to be. And so there's a fight for, to bring in no-fault divorce in our country. And our society wants to say marriage is wonderful, but also marriage is dispensable. And people throw around the figure that all, you know, 50% of all marriages end in divorce. And nobody seems to be bothered by that. Is that the sort of marriage that the Bible is picturing when it talks about the church as bride? A Let's hope that we're on the right side of the 50% sort of marriage. A, hey, we're loving it right now, but if we fall out of love, we can always get divorced sort of marriage, sort of love. Now, the marriage that God promises for his people is an unending, unceasing, unbeatable sort of marriage and sort of love that is based, is formed on the basis of God's perfect love for his people it's based on the reality of what God has done for us in Jesus 
a husband who we're told has washed or cleaned his bride, who has bought his bride, has ransomed her, a husband who has pursued his bride, a husband who has not given up on his bride even when she falls short. How do we know it's this sort of love? Well, we dip into the wider picture that God gives us in the Bible about how he loves his people. And so there's a whole book of the Bible that's a love story, a song that's meant to depict the beauty and wonder and excitement and pleasure of marriage and of sex. The Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon known as both, is a a song written in various parts portraying the love and the desire and the attraction between King Solomon and his beloved, the king and his bride, singing with unashamed candour about their feelings for one another. Let me read a little bit to you about how the king describes his bride in the Song of Songs. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your your perfume more than any spice. What about this? You are as beautiful as Terza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. Sixty queens there may be, and eighty concubines, and virgins beyond number, but my dove, my perfect one, is unique. The only daughter of her mother, the favourite of the one who bore her, the young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. This is how the king feels about his bride. He says, of all, there's all the women in the world, of every value, and all of them look, and they think just like I do, she's incomparable. There's nothing I wouldn't do for her. I love her so. And the question has always been, why is this in the Bible? How is this scripture, the Song of Songs, and if you've never read it, it gets a bit tastier. To the point of you check who's in the audience before you read parts of it. How is this useful for pointing us to Jesus? How is it useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be equipped for every good work? Well, maybe the second answer, question is easier to answer than the first. The Song of Songs models marital joy and pleasure for us, gives us a prompt to love our spouse if we're married like that. But what if we're not married? What if we are, will never be married? Then that answer is insufficient, isn't it? And we're told that all of Scripture is useful, including the Song of Songs. Instead, we must understand that the love and desire 
of the groom for the bride and the bride for the groom in the Song of Songs is pointing us towards the love and desire of God for his people. The love and desire that Christ has for his bride, the church. Now it's a metaphor as well as a model meant to show us not that God has got sexual desire towards his people, but like all metaphors, it's designed to show us you know, one or two truths, not be a direct link for everything that's said to the reality it's pointing towards. This picture is meant to show us the strength and the intensity of God's love for his people. And I think we sort of get that, don't we? We know, don't we, that sex sells. It's why companies use physically attractive people to model their goods, be that beer or clothes or washing up liquid. The power of, in- of attraction is not invented by the, the marketers. It's invented by God. That's how he's made us. To see and to acknowledge beauty. And to desire beauty. And that's how he's made us so that we might understand more of his great love for us. God loves his people like this husband loves his wife. In a way that he can't stop talking about her. That he can be in a room full of other women and He's only got eyes for her. Whether she's inside or outside or go away and read the rest of it. This is how much God loves his people. A guy called John Piper, pastor, book writer, said this. The ultimate reason, not the only one, why we are sexual is to make God more deeply knowable. The language and imagery of sexuality are the most graphic and powerful that the Bible uses to describe the relationship between God and his people. Both positively, when we are faithful, and negatively, when we are not. So there's a whole book in the Bible dedicated towards this this great outpouring of love. of The husband for his wife, the king for his bride. But there's also a a whole book of the Bible that roots itself in a drama of a broken and unfaithful marriage. To powerfully illustrate the damage done by by God's people in their rejection of God. That book's called Hosea. Let me read some of that book to you. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Later on it says, their mother has been unfaithful and she has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal, another god. This whole drama plays out. 
so that God can express the hurt caused by the unfaithfulness of his people. A people who are stubborn. A people who are unloving and unfaithful to their God. And God says, do you want to know what it's like? It's like I am the husband and you are the wife. And you have gone out and sold yourself and slept with every other person rather than me. And God is distraught at the behavior of his people. Why does sin matter? Why does idolatry matter? It matters because it hurts the one who loves us the most. Like the adultery of a spouse. This is how God feels when we turn from him. When we love other people. And we love other things more than we love him. Time and again in the Bible, God communicates his great love for his people by using this marriage illustration. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, that is, if you belong to him through faith in his righteous life, lived for you, in his sacrificial death, suffered for you, his glorious resurrection on your behalf, If that's you, then you are part of his bride. You are loved by God with a deep, passionate, eternal love. This is the love that God has for you. It's this great, that on the day when Jesus is revealed to be all that he said he was, When on the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, when every doubt about his existence, every doubt about his teaching, every doubt about his truth, his miracles, his plans, his death, his resurrection, when every doubt will be put to rest and everybody will see that Jesus is truly who he said he was, and when every excuse offered will be exposed for what it is, and when every enemy is defeated, On that day, the one that Jesus will sit beside in glory as his beloved includes you. That is how much Jesus loves his church. When all the heavenly creatures will gather round and will celebrate. Where will we be sat? Well, if we have put our trust in Jesus, we will be on the top table sat with him. And that's nothing short of remarkable for a people who are ordinary, sinful, and change the notion, very notion of how God interacts with us. We are loved like that. That is our future. And that's why this picture of the church as a bride is good, even if you struggle with it. Some of you are single when you would prefer not to be. And so the idea that the church is a bride is difficult. 
Some of you are no longer married for different reasons. And maybe it's hard to hear that you're part of the bride when you would love to be still married or you would love to be married again. Our great destination is the heavenly wedding to belong to our saviour forever. And he won't start loving us then. He has loved us from before we existed. He has loved us while we were still sinners. While we were still at our most unlovely. Even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of our struggle, even in the midst of our sorrow, we are loved with an everlasting love, even now. And we will be forever. Ed Shaw, in his little book called Purposeful Sexuality, takes that statement that I read by John Piper, that the ultimate reason that we are sexual is to make God more deeply knowable. And he expands upon that to talk about the hope that even in the confusion of sexuality that is currently overtaking our society, that many of us, maybe even here, feel confused about the things that we want and the desires that we have that are not attainable, that come into conflict with what the Bible teaches about sexuality and marriage. This is the great hope that our sexuality has a purpose. Even if we're not married, even if we think we could never be married in this life, our desires are made within us so that we might anticipate what is true and will be true for us when we are joined to Jesus in the heavenly marriage. God has given you a sexuality, even if you're single, even if you're divorced, even if you're widowed, so that you would know more of how God feels for you, that he desires you, that he is jealous for you, that he will truly bring you to completion in a way that no earthly marriage will, in a way that no earthly union, physical or otherwise, will. Let me finish this section just by a couple of applications. And the first one is to say, sex is good, but it is temporary. We are made for the heavenly marriage. So sex is a good gift for marriage, but it's not ultimate. And our society certainly treats it like it is. And we, as Christians, can treat it like it is both more and less important than it is. If we don't see how that God has made us to be like this so that we anticipate heaven and that we anticipate being married to Christ, we've given it less importance than it ought to have. But if we think that sex will satisfy us in this life, we're giving it too much credit. Secondly, singleness is temporary but not because everyone will get married stats say that more will than won't but not all people get married but human marriage is also temporary 
we are made to be married to Christ, to know him and to be known by him. And so marriage, human marriage, is for this life. It's a good gift, but so is singleness. There is lots more we could say, but time is getting away from us. Our second implication, the church's bride, so that we know how wonderful our destination is. I'm going to talk about anticipation and preparation. Let me turn back to Revelation. And just go forward a chapter, two chapters, to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Think about anticipation. This is where we are going. This future day, this future wedding. When God's people, so the city in, in, this, in the, the Revelation 21, the city is the bride, is the people. And Revelation 21 points us forward to a day when we will be joined together forever with God. But remember who this is written to. These small churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire who are struggling, who are suffering, who are small, and they are under, under the shadow of Rome. Imagine what it would have been like for them to have heard this. This is where you're going. One day you will not be small. One day you will not be scared. One day you won't be crying and fearful. This is not it. I think the Bible wants to say that truth to us over and over and over again. As we live in our daily lives with our daily problems... This is not it. Something else is coming. Something greater. One day, God says to his church, one day you will be without stain or blemish. All your sin will be gone. All your shame will be taken away. All your guilt will be removed, never to return. No more sinful thoughts, no more anger, no more questionable desires. Only goodness, only glory, only worship. This is where we're going. To be the bride of Christ. Look forwards. One of the jobs of the church and by the church, I mean all of us. One of our jobs is to remind ourselves and each other of where we are going. Through our words, through our songs, through our prayers, through our preaching, 
through our conversations, through baptism, through taking the Lord's Supper together, to remind each other that no matter the struggles and the sorrows and the sins of today, our destination is to be with Christ and to be married to Christ at the wedding supper of the Lamb. That that future is assured. As we speak into each other's lives, are we bringing that future to bear for one another? There's a world of difference, isn't there, between saying, I'm sure things will get better next week. Not least because we often we say that and we've got no idea. It's almost as if we're just saying, well, on the odds of probability, things will probably be better now. It can't get any worse, surely. There's a world of difference between saying that and saying, remember that one day we will be with Christ. So saying somebody who is struggling with sin, there will come a day if you continue to fight when you will be done with that struggle. There will come a day where you are pure and blameless, without sin and without shame. Will we say to each other, you are part of the bride. Look where you're going. And as we struggle with a world that won't acknowledge Christ and seems to be veering further and further away from his ways and his teachings... Let us remind each other that our great purpose is not to change this world or to bring people to to live by Christ's standards without knowing Christ. But let's remind each other that Christ will win. And our job, well we're going to lead into this with a preparation, but our job is to know him and love him and to trust that he will remake this world. This is what will come to be. The heavenly marriage between Christ and his people. For, as one of the most famous verses in all the Bible says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. As those loved by God, as a husband loves his wife, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is he saying as he writes those words? The heavenly wedding is going to take place. And nothing will stop it. Nothing. Not our own stupidity. Not the threats that are made against individuals, against the church. Not persecution. I wish we could say this to our brothers and sisters who live in places where this very night their lives might be taken because they publicly follow Jesus. Nothing can separate you. Your future is certain. Christ will marry his people. so we should have anticipation but also then we should think about preparation we read in revelation 21 about the bride who was beautifully dressed for her husband prepared who does that preparation let's go back to the reading that david read for us quite a while ago now 
Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Notice in both the passages from Revelation, the emphasis is on the beautiful, spotless bride. This picture language is supposed to make us think of a beautiful bride who has never looked better. Ten, just over ten years ago, I married Libby. And she's not here, so I can embarrass her without, you know, without fear of reprisal. We got married in Newport. Lib put so much effort into that day. Choosing the dress, doing a hair in a way that I've never seen before. Looking stunning as she walked down the aisle. I looked tired because I'd stayed up too late playing Mario Kart the night before. But she looked amazing. Just stunning. And in that moment, some of you were there. She walked down the aisle and every eye in the church was on her. And she was stunning. And that's what we're supposed to think of as we think about this heavenly marriage. The bride, the church is beautiful. But the beauty that Jesus wants us to see is not physical. It's not a white dress. But it is the righteous acts of his people. And we see in these words the twofold reality that God teaches us in the Bible about how we are changed. God works and we work. The bride has made herself ready. And fine linen was given to her to wear. It's not one or the other. How do we become like that spotless bride? Well, God works in us and we work out our salvation in the language of Philippians. God the Spirit lives in his people, leading them, challenging them, convicting them. And his people are to follow where he leads. Not least listening to what God the Spirit has given us in his word. All scripture is God breathed. And is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking and training in righteousness so that servant of God may be fully equipped for every good work. We are to go where the Spirit leads us. To listen to what he teaches, to obey what he prompts us, to do what he calls us to. And I want to say here. For some of us, maybe this picture of the church being a bride is, it's a struggle. Maybe especially the men. There may well be some amongst us who have dreamed of being a bride since they were a little girl. I'm guessing that's probably not true of most of the blokes. But this idea of being beautiful, of being perfection, Who's the most beautiful person in the world? Who's the most beautiful, spotless person this world has ever seen? It's Jesus. And we are called to be like Jesus. 
to put on these righteous acts, not put on in a fake way, but as in to get on and, and do, to clothe ourselves in righteousness. In preparation for the heavenly wedding, it's not makeup and hair and clothes, it's, it's sacrificial love. It's speaking to the unlovely. It's speaking for the voiceless. It's servant-hearted leadership in whatever capacity you have leadership in. It's putting others before yourself. It's costly forgiveness of those who have hurt us. It's walking alongside people we know will let us down. We are to love God with all of our hearts, souls, mind and strength. We are to love our friends. We are to love the church in all of her diversity. Not just the people who are like us. We are to love our enemies. These, in the little ways and the large ways, are not feminine acts. Remember, this is just a a picture These are Christ-like acts. So if you're struggling with the marriage picture for whatever reason and the bride picture, don't despise it. But instead, hear the call. Prepare yourself. Get on with the work of pursuing Christ. And know that he is doing it too. Notice that the bride comes out of heaven. It's like she's been gone into the salon. She's gone to be with God and then comes from God to be presented to Christ. We need to get on and prepare ourselves even as as God prepares us. As we finish up our series on what the church is, we remind ourselves that the church belongs to Jesus. That we are to love one another as a family to reflect Christ together in the world, to honour every part of his body, to rest on the cornerstone that is Christ and his gospel, his life, death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. And we are to eagerly prepare for what is to come, the wedding of the Lamb, to look forward to a day of joy, and feasting of finality and fullness of glory and victory. For this is not it. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the things that we have heard from you through your word, through your servants over the past few weeks, would thrill us, would encourage us, would spur us on. Father, as we learn more of what it is that you have saved us into, your church, Father, we pray that we might more accurately reflect the calling. Forgive us for where we fall short. Encourage us that this is your plan and your church and that you are bringing all things to a wonderful, joyful, beautiful conclusion. Father, again, we pray that prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, 
would you continue to be at work in us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.